Hey, Deep State Radio listeners, it's Grant Haver, producer for the DSR Network. You're hearing my voice again because we're doing something else new over the weekends. Every Sunday, you can expect an episode from another show on our network. If you like the episode, be sure to subscribe to the show's individual feed to get every new episode directly to your podcast player of choice. This week, we're sharing the latest episode of Next in Foreign Policy. On Next in Foreign Policy, Zoe Weinberg and I interview some of the most important up-and-coming foreign policy and national security professionals about issues in the news and some you may have missed. We hope you enjoy this conversation. I'm Grant Haver. I'm Zoe Weinberg. And this is Next in Foreign Policy, the podcast where the next generation of national security and foreign policy leaders talk about the issues of today and tomorrow. This week, we're joined by Scott Bade, who is a senior analyst at Eurasia Group, where he covers the geopolitics of technology. But we have him on today because he's a longtime watcher of UK politics and foreign policy. He was even a co-author of the Sunday Times best-selling policy manifesto, More Human, designing a world where people come first with David Cameron's former policy chief. Scott, thanks for joining us. Great to be on. How did you get into foreign policy in the first place? And how did you end up writing a policy manifesto in the UK? I have always been interested in the world and international relations and history and all those things. And I, I did Model UN in high school. I, my government papers were the most exciting. And when I got to college, I knew very quickly those are the areas I wanted to study. My interest in the UK came about partially because I could understand the media. <laughs> and it was, it was easy. There's a lot written about it. It's very interesting. And, and the history lover in me, as we are seeing right now, you know, there's such, so many traditions attached to UK politics and, and UK foreign policy. And it's very interesting. So, for example, you know, as an undergrad, I, I ended up studying how the British Empire and uh, influenced future British foreign policy, right? And there's a lot of historical legacy. And so as a historian, that was always very interesting to me. The book came about mostly because I had studied the UK. There's a gentleman, Steve Hilton, who was David Cameron's policy chief, had, had come out to Stanford and was teaching, and he needed someone to help him write his book. And since I had some understanding of, of the UK and its system and and cultural context, uh, I ended up working on it along with my brother, actually. Uh, and that was a fascinating experience to really get to learn about another country's politics and policies from someone who had been at the center of that, that system. And I tend to think of you as, as maybe a, a more progressive guy and David Cameron, obviously a Tory. And so what was that like thinking about the way maybe our politics and your personal politics impacted the way you sort of thought about the UK and, and thought about that writing project? It was intellectually a really interesting exercise because you're right, I come sort of from the center left in the US. But the thing is, when you're talking to, I think this goes for international politics writ large, other countries' politics do not have the same contours as ours. They don't have the same shibboleths. And so, for example, you talk to a conservative in the UK, and the idea of not having universal health care is just anathema. They think it's insane. So maybe they have a slightly more free market approach to how it's provided. Uh, you heard a lot of government, uh, government guaranteed market provision is something you heard a lot in UK conservative circles. 
the idea of sort of attaching healthcare to private enterprise and jobs makes no sense to anyone in the UK who's a conservative, even even the you know the most ardent Thatcherite. So that was actually a really interesting process, and I didn't agree with everything that we ended up ended up coming in the book. The the paperback actually ended up endorsing Brexit against Steve Smart Boss, and I was opposed to that. And Cameron and his other and, and a lot of his people around him know, know that. But you know, it was a, it was a really great experience, and I would encourage people, uh, especially younger people, but older people too, who are listening to this, that if you have the chance to work with someone whose political views of yours aren't necessarily aligned, it's actually a really fascinating experience because oftentimes we would he would have some crazy thought and and uh we would say no that makes no sense he's like well we'll go out and find me evidence for it and then we'd go out and do some research and find out that almost all the time he was right in the end and and, and so really challenging your biases i think is a really healthy exercise what did you go into it thinking that he was wrong and then came out of it thinking maybe he has a point like what were some of those things where you're like I disagree with you about X. Obviously, that's not Brexit, but what was it? I would say his his you know, views on on localism, on on decentralization, for instance. Because remember, they're not necessarily against the government being involved, but they just they're very much in favor of subsidiarity. This concept that's very common in, in say Switzerland, where essentially government takes over at the lowest common you know you go to the lowest common level of government where it, it can be uh, useful. And I don't think that's always right, but I learned more instances where I think it probably works better than it should. I, I don't think it necessarily works always for equity, but for provision of services, it often can be much more productive and useful. And so, so things like that. And actually, during this time, we wrote about antitrust, for example, well before it became fashionable in the United States. And this is coming from a conservative, fair market perspective. And someone who's pro-market but says, well, I want markets to be fair, rather than I want to break up companies just because I don't like capitalism, but because, well, I don't like crony capitalism, and I don't like companies that are too big, and and using their power anti-competitively. So obviously, the big news that everyone is watching, talking about, is the death of Queen Elizabeth II. Does it have a geopolitical impact, or is it just a celebrity story? There's not that much I can say about the Queen that hasn't been said by all 500 commentators on every network. Nonetheless, I do think that there is a a big impact culturally, obviously, but also geopolitically. And we have to remember the Queen, her greatest service to the UK was her soft, or not maybe not greatest service, but her a big service of hers was her soft power. The UK is a soft soft power superpower in large part because of the Queen, in large part because of the royal family. I've heard reports of Kenya and and uh, having flags at half staff Cuba there being some remembrances you know front page of the news you know countries you wouldn't expect to be following this but nonetheless the world has followed the queen and she's had this remarkable life she ties together a century of history really and so I think that there is a psychic impact almost um psychological impact almost to that geopolitically clearly she was a figurehead and was less important um in terms of matters of war and peace but I, I don't think we should understate her how stability influenced things. Clearly, she couldn't stop Brexit even if she wanted to, and, and we don't know what she wanted to on Brexit. Both sides have sort of claimed that. But she helped, I think, enable decolonization to happen. The British Empire was able to, to maintain a bit of the fig leaf of still being an empire because you still had the imperial state crown, right? And you had the pomp and circumstance, and that part didn't go away. That allowed UK after World War II 
to let itself down, I think, in a more metered way and allow people to accept things. And, and that also probably worked counterproductively, say, in the Suez crisis, where British politicians probably thought that they were more powerful than they were. And, and, and uh, the idea of still being an empire probably didn't, didn't help there. More recently, the part geopolitically that she has most been uh, talked about is obviously her role in Ireland, her visit, her state visit to Ireland. This is more than a decade now, I think, but was really powerful, really prompted reconciliation, was really helpful in that process. She met the Sinn Féin leaders, which was unthinkable considering her you know, close relative, Lord Mountbatten, was assassinated by the IRA in 1979. Actually, what was interesting is I think just yesterday, the day before, the days go together now with, with this royal mourning process, but to the Prince Charles, but King Charles was in Northern Ireland and he was meeting the Northern Irish re- leaders, including the heads of, of Sinn Féin. And that's an unthinkable thing that the monarchy brings together. I, I don't see Liz Truss meeting the Sinn Féin leaders anytime soon, but here you have the new king getting their uh, condolences and that alone is going to help maintain uh, uh, stability uh, and, and peace in that region uh, that you have some of that continuity. So let's go to Northern Ireland because this was a big issue with Brexit specifically because obviously Northern Ireland on the island of Ireland and the hard border between North Ireland and the Republic of Ireland was something that they wanted to make sure didn't come back because that was part of the Good Friday Accords that ended the Troubles. There's been some you know, negotiation around that, but that's ended up with basically having import and export problems with North Ireland and the rest of the United Kingdom. Do you think this is going to continue to be a problem? Do you think Europe's going to look the other way and just let them relax the the barriers between UK and Northern Ireland? Or what do you think's going on there? Northern Ireland has been the tricky issue of Brexit. There's no denying that. That essentially, and, and I think most analysts would agree, most impartial analysts would agree, and I, I should, full disclaimer, uh, you know, while Eurasia Group doesn't necessarily back either way, I was very vocal and in, 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 saying Brexit was a bad idea well before. Nonetheless, I, I think if you look impartially, the big problem with Brexit was always going to be Northern Ireland, because the whole foundation of the Good Friday Peace Accords were that you would have, as you're saying, you wouldn't have borders on the island of Ireland. Because for those of you who, who are listeners who, who might not know, Northern Ireland and Ireland, there's a republic in the south, and, and the sort of the six counties in the north are Northern Ireland, are part of the United Kingdom. And that was what the troubles were fought over, et cetera. And being able to pass goods back and forth, that allowed, and, and people, the free movement that came with part of the, United, uh, the European Union, that was really the glue that held the peace together for the last 20 years. And now that's being threatened. And, and the problem is that you have unionists in Northern Ireland who don't want anything that draws any sort of border in the Irish Sea between them and Great Britain. And you have the Irish and the EU saying, quite reasonably, the UK, you signed a treaty saying there would not be a border on the island of Ireland, and so you have to abide by that. And so what you've had is this this game between uh, London and Brussels, where both sides are negotiating. The UK keeps saying, oh, we need more, we need more, we need to negotiate. 
the EU says, well, we have a treaty, so we're going to follow the treaty. You know, we, we can we can smooth the edges a little bit. And right now, they've kind of been fudging by by essentially using de facto measures for the time being without fully implementing things. There is a risk of a trade war in the coming year or so. We think at Eurasia Group that that's unlikely unlikely to happen. We think a stalemate is probably the likeliest answer in the next in the next year. Truss had been somewhat belligerent in the campaign and as foreign secretary, probably going to be softened now, now that she's actually prime minister and has to really deal with them. But I don't think we're going to see a trade war, but I don't think we're going to see a solution either. So if no trade war and no solution, where does that leave Northern Irish angst? I think as Americans, we tend to, especially people of our age, because we're too young to remember the troubles, they were very recent. And the culture there hasn't changed a ton. So there's still Protestant, Catholic issues, old Irish, sort of new new English problems, even though maybe the world is a little less polarized. Those conflicts are still there. And without a solution, are you just going to end up with an even more aggressive Protestant Northern Irish faction that prevents a government like we saw earlier? So I, I think that the the detail that's most salient is what you just said. What you just said is our generation and the current our generation in Northern Ireland doesn't remember the troubles because they were either too young or they weren't born yet. They don't want the sectarianism. In that respect, I'm fairly optimistic about Northern Ireland. I, I think that any sort of flare up of tensions is going to be relatively muted, and you're not going to see a return to the full-scale violence that we saw in the 1980s and, and into the 90s. That being said, certainly there is a potential for civil strife. And the longer this goes on without uh, a solution, you'll have that problem. And it's not just a UK-EU issue. It's also an intra-Northern Ireland issue. The Stormont, which is sort of the seat of government in, in Belfast, has been in a, a government crisis for the last several years now because there was a unity government between the uh, DUP, which is the main unionist party, and the Sinn, and Sinn Féin, which is the the uh, Irish Republican Party. And what ended up happening is that the uh, DUP pulled out and was not willing to accept Sinn Féin as as the uh, first minister, and and basically the government collapsed. And so you have the potential now of Northern Ireland being ruled from London, which nobody wants. And so honestly, the biggest threat to Northern Ireland and peace in Northern Ireland is the domestic politics of Northern Ireland, less than anything the UK is doing with Brexit. That being said, the Brexit situation destabilizes it and aggravates the politics. You had under Theresa May, for the first time, a Northern Irish, Northern Irish party brought into government in the UK through uh, you know, sort of a confidence and supply to support her government. So that makes London less of a partial player. So Northern Ireland is being brought in to... Brexit in really awkward ways that are ultimately going to be not helped if the government in London persists on this more aggressive course. Going back very quickly to some of the questions that are coming up on the occasion of the Queen passing away, the UK has not seen a transition of power on the monarchy side for 70 years. Is there anything that we should be on the lookout for as we see 
Charles assume these new powers and what the ripple effects will be across both the UK itself, but also, you know, the former colonial footprint of, of the UK. Yeah, I, I think that what is striking me most in the last few days here is just how much continuity Charles represents, which I'm not sure I would have expected, but you know, you're seeing the deep outpouring of grief for the Queen. And it's amazing. I talk to and hear from British people I know who aren't even monarchists, but are still so moved and affected by the Queen's death. And that is giving the new king, uh, Charles, quite the honeymoon, because everyone is feeling very sympathetic for him. You know, I, I saw there's this video going around that I think is slightly unfair of him getting in an argument with a pen, you know, and not working, and he's signing the wrong date, and, and you know, then the ink started spilling. And, and, and some people, uh, mostly Americans, I think were portraying that as a, oh, he's snapping, he's snob, etc. The man's mom just died. He has had nonstop public appearances for the last three days. He just had to walk, what, a mile or two behind his mother's coffin. I think that most people have a lot of sympathy for that and are like, you know what? I couldn't do that. That's an, um, that's an emotional and physical trial that is really quite incredible, right? And even though he's been preparing for this for 70 years, he's sort of the Joe Biden of British royalty in that he's been preparing for this role all his life. So I, I, I do think that there's a lot of sympathy for him. I think that so far things have been handled quite beautifully. Yeah, I've been trying to catch, and I, I'm, I'm on the West Coast currently, and so watching anything live is hard, but I've been trying to catch glimpses of some of these occasions. And look, the Brit we were talking about soft power earlier. The British know how to do pomp and circumstance. We always knew that, but they really do. And it's just very moving to watch. And so I, I think that that all helps Charles. It cements him in his role because he gets to play this role of the nation's chief mourner and the nation really is mourning. This isn't a a Potemkin funeral where people are pretending to be sad. People are really, you know, the, the, the cues to see the queen's body are several miles long and they're expected to grow. So all that being said, I think that Charles will bring a different style to the monarchy. We know his views on many issues. He's not his mother in that respect, or she was, she took the throne in a period where you didn't say much, but also there was no social media and there, was, there wasn't really TV yet or very little TV. So you didn't have the opportunity to be a known figure. And so the royal family, they weren't celebrities in 1952. They are now. And Charles has not just been a celebrity, but he's become a very prominent public figure of and philanthropy and activism and, and even dabbling a little bit in politics. And so we do know his views. He has stated that he understands the line between being heir to the throne and sovereign. I think it'll be hard for him to resist that sometimes. That being said, he is a very, very smart and wise man. And I, I realize that this might not be the most popular view, but I actually am rather bullish on him as king. He is very, very thoughtful on a whole host of issues. He's done quite a bit on interfaith relations. If you read his book, Harmony, which is, I actually highly recommend it. It's a book of basically philosophy, but it's, it's very, very interesting. He talks a lot about the beauty of Islam and how there's so many natural patterns in Islam and how he relates to that in architecture and in art and in nature. And that's part of also his love for nature and conservation and climate. And so he's been right on a lot of important issues, maybe not everything, 
but he is someone who has met everyone that matters in the last half century and has brings to his role a lifetime of accumulating knowledge and wisdom. And he's not going to publicly advocate either way, but he will, behind closed doors, I think, be able to moderate the influence of governments in, in, in different directions. And, and, and just one point on this is that I think that the Queen probably did some to moderate Boris Johnson, perhaps, in Northern Ireland. Will Charles be able to do the same with Liz Truss? It's hard to know, but certainly I think he'll try and keep the UK government on, on course on his climate commitments, on interfaith relations, uh, on some of these issues that he finds very important. Because remember, he is sovereign of of the whole country. And I think he takes that both very seriously. Do you get the sense that enthusiasm for the royal family is a generational issue in many ways? Like, you know, obviously, the country, the UK and the UK are, are mourning, but I've gotten the sense that there's there's a feeling that that younger citizens are perhaps not as emotionally invested in the royal family as as perhaps their parents' generation. There's probably some truth to that, yes. I think anyone who is of the Queen's generation or even Charles's generation, you know, they grew up in a very different country. You know, they say the past is a foreign country and they grew up in that sort of halo of end of World War II and of empire. And and well, the 1950s was not the most pleasant period for Britain. It had economic crises. It had the Great London Fog. It, it, Suez happened, right? So there's a lot of things that went wrong in that period. But there was sort of a, she inherited and she carried with her the glory of Churchill and of empire and of, of her father that who, had, who commanded a lot of respect. Charles doesn't have that. And I think that Younger generations, obviously, the UK is a lot more diverse. Uh, it was a white country when the Queen ascended the throne, and it, it is certainly much more multicultural now. And a lot of people are questioning authority and questioning inequality. Charles, I think, is getting ahead of things somewhat in that he has signaled that he'll streamline the monarchy and make it much more slimmed down, where it's it's him, it's William and, and Kate, and maybe some of the, the nephews and nieces, and Princess Anne will probably continue to be the workhorse of, of the family. But, you know, he's not going to subsidize dozens of royal cousins. He's not going to keep Prince Andrew and his, his daughters employed. So I think there is a understanding that if, if the royal family is going to continue to work, it can't be this bastion of privilege. It has to do a lot more to be in touch with the times. So the royal family might work for the UK? But it seems like it might not work for the whole Commonwealth. So some other countries that have the the monarch of the UK as their head of state, New Zealand, Australia, Antigua and Barbuda, and others are having conversations about with this change, whether or not they want to become republics and to get rid of the monarch. Do you think this is a big deal? Or do you see it as like, ah, Everyone in the UK knows that the Commonwealth is kind of a farce and like it doesn't matter that much. I don't think it's a huge deal. The one aspect where I think the Queen deserves a lot of credit is she was very gracious uh, in the dissolution of the empire. And the British royals have never fought to hold on to their crowns, at least since you know the 1600s. If you look at 
India and Pakistan. If you look at South Africa, when some of these you know, African countries like Ghana became republics or, in, or became independent, the royals, they didn't stand in the way. And, and the first thing, you know, the queen famously, and, and this was famous in, in the, the TV show The Crown, but she went to Ghana and she danced with Nkrumah. And she was very happy to do that. And she actually was much more ahead on, on race relations than her governments for many decades. So I, I think that the royal family is actually ahead of things. Obviously, they probably prefer not to lose a crown or two, but they have been very gracious in the past, and I think they'll continue to be. And, and Charles went to Barbados last year when they became a republic, and again, was very gracious and accepted that. They're not going to campaign to keep their crowns, and, and they realize that they can't be seen to do that. I also think that there are some countries that are, are talking about this, and, and it's, it's unclear how many will actually go this route. Perhaps Antigua will. Canada, my understanding is it's basically constitutionally impossible, given all the checks and balances. Australia, flirting with it, but we'll see. New Zealand probably won't. Charles will still be king of multiple realms for his reign. And then, you, and then eventually you get William, and, and uh, he's more popular. The one thing I will say is that I think that the Commonwealth was a brilliant innovation, because even though it doesn't do all that much, it allows this release valve, so to speak, of countries wanting to leave the empire, but still maintaining a connection. And so they have that royal connection. They may or may not have the queen or now king as head of state, but they do they're still part of this thing. And so it's actually a great marketing for the crown because you're still head of the Commonwealth and you're still head of this family of nations, which has in fact grown with countries that weren't even part of the British Empire. And some don't even speak English, like Rwanda joined. So you can allow countries to no longer have the British monarch as their sovereign, but then you're still part of the Commonwealth. You're still part of this very much an imperial legacy, and, and, and that soft power continues in a different form. And so I, I do think that the British have been, the monarchy has been actually pretty adept at continuing its legacy in soft power in that way without, well, letting countries go the way they want to go. And, and it, doesn't, it didn't hurt, certainly, that the Queen, for example, sided with, with the former colonial leaders against Margaret Thatcher when it came to apartheid back in the 80s. So let's talk about Liz Truss. What's your take? Liz Truss, she is a interesting figure. She's part of the new crop. I mean, she's not been in parliament all that long. She came in under David Cameron. She was a minister in his government. So she actually has a lot of cabinet experience. That being said, until recently, she wasn't really seen as a heavyweight. Uh, you know, she, she wasn't, you know, she was foreign secretary for, I don't know, maybe, if it, maybe a year if that, but she plays to the grassroots. Now, I, I think one problem, and this is a structural problem now in British party politics, is that before you had the parliamentary parties choosing the leader, both Labour and Conservative. Both parties have gone to the system now where you run a contest in Parliament, and then you send the top two to the party uh, membership in the country, and it's sort of a primary. Now, to American ears, that sounds pretty rational, except in, in the UK, as in most countries, actually the party membership you pay to join it's it's a much smaller thing. So the you know, Conservative Party has a couple hundred thousand members in a country of sixty million. So the parties are actually pretty small, which means that they're dominated by activists. They're not representative of the country. And so this is how you got Jeremy Corbyn as leader of the Labour Party. This is how you get 
Boris Johnson and Liz Truss as uh, as leaders of the Conservative Party, all three of whom might not have been the obvious choice of the electorate. The other problem that is happening in UK politics is that since 2010, when David Cameron took over uh, as part of the coalition government, you have not had a leader take office at the time of a general election. Theresa May took over after Cameron resigned, and she called an election soon after, but she didn't have to have an election to, to get in office. Same thing with Boris Johnson. Same thing now with Liz Trust, who can wait up till 2024, uh, I think, to have a, a general election. And so Trust doesn't have a popular mandate, and she doesn't even have a parliamentary mandate. And that's going to cause, I think, some problems with her. The death of the Queen is a tricky period for Liz Truss. She was two days into office. I mean, the Queen got an extra prime minister in, which was kind of uh, remarkable when you think of how many she's had. And it did step, though, on Truss's announcements for the energy crisis and cost of living, which could run 150 billion pounds. We don't know because the the uh, details haven't been announced yet. And so that's going to be a challenge for her getting, you know, cutting through, you know, two or three week this news cycle, right? Two or three week news cycle of the Queen. On the other hand, it does give her some opportunities. Truss has kind of been known in British politics as the Instagram politician, and she has used it quite a bit. She has tried to model herself after Margaret Thatcher, and you know, posing on tanks and 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 and, the, and wearing clothing where she looks like Margaret Thatcher, um, very much. Truss narrowly avoided stepping in it a bit after the Queen died in in two ways. She gave her her speech outside of Number Ten. It was very respectful. It was not a Tony Blair People's Princess moment. It could have been, but she's just not that kind of speaker. I think for Boris Johnson, it actually would have been. If, if this had happened three months ago before Johnson had resigned, this could have forestalled his, his resignation, to be honest. That being said, it didn't hurt Truss. And Truss will now have lots of photographic moments where she will be with world leaders and Biden will be there and Macron will be there and the emperor of Japan will be there. And she'll be getting to play, not chief mourner, but she'll be playing an active role. She did narrowly avoid controversy where they were floating that she would go with the new king around to all the nations as he kind of accepts the condolences and, and, and meets the, the leadership. And that was why they wisely pulled out after they got some pressure, because that would be seen as trying to get the king, the implicit endorsement of the royal family. And I have some figures here. I think only 15% of the public and 35% of Troy voters have a favorable view of her. So she does need to boost her her ratings, and this may help, but she has a lot of work to do. So one of the criticisms that people have of the American system is that we let just anyone vote for party leaders, which is how you get Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders and, and whoever, because you're saying anyone that has is willing to say, I'm a part of this party without putting any skin in the game or doing any work can vote. And then people look at systems like the UK or, or Germany, and they say, ah, they're parliamentarians, they're real party people get to select their nominees. And if the public doesn't like them, they can do something else. If the options are between Jeremy Corbyn and Boris Johnson, why isn't there another party that springs up? I know there's the Liberal Democrats, but why aren't there other parties that spring up in the UK? And like, it doesn't seem like any of these systems work for picking good leaders. So like, what should we do? Scott, save us. The UK, you know, there are some 
benefits to the system. Uh, for instance, in a parliamentary system, you actually can call a no confidence vote in a leader and get rid of them. And that's what happened with Boris Johnson. And in a way that you look at the United States and you have someone like Donald Trump, who it has to be impeachment, it has to be high crimes and misdemeanors. You didn't need high crimes and misdemeanors for Boris Johnson, although he was found to have uh, uh, breached the law. Uh, but that wasn't the reason he was removed. He was removed because he became a political liability and parliament lost confidence in him. And so they decided that he, was, he no longer had their confidence to be prime minister, and so he was ousted. So that is, I think, a positive of the system. But I, I do agree with your point that for a parliamentary party to work, you probably have to have proportional representation. The UK has a first past the post like the US does. And so that, like in the US, favors the Republicans, it favors conservatives in the UK. Labor vote tends to be urban, it tends to be less efficient. And so labor has to outperform the Tories, basically, to be able to actually win an outright majority. Now, they could do that under Tony Blair, he was very popular. They've not been able to do that since. The Liberal Democrats, you know, they, they get some protest votes, they're sort of the center. But I think the same reasons you don't see a centrist party in the U.S. is the same reason that they don't get a lot of traction. They're also their brand was damaged somewhat when they joined the coalition in 2010, basically over student student fees are an issue in the U.K. as they are in the U.S. And there was a controversy over that I won't get into, but that kind of lost them some confidence. I actually think that if you're looking for a system that that is more representative, you might want to look at say New Zealand. New Zealand, uh, another Commonwealth country, another Westminster Parliament parliamentary system. But they have something called mixed member proportional voting, where you have the geographic constituencies, but you also have party lists that you top up proportionally after the fact. And so it allows you to have MPs who are tied to a, a geography and represent, you know, have been elected by constituents, but also you end up with a parliament that is representative. And because it's mostly, it's basically a two-party system with a couple of small minor parties, you, you end up with pretty stable governments and, and you don't have these unwieldy coalitions. I mean, that's the other problem is that you have you know, the Netherlands, which has like 10 parties. There's no perfect system is really the short answer. How do you think the relationship between the US and UK is going to evolve with the change of leadership? I don't, I don't think there'll be a huge difference. Boris Johnson wasn't particularly well-loved in Washington, or at least in, in Democrat politics. I think Liz Truss will be less well-loved, and that saying something, but people don't know Liz Truss. I mean, she's relatively new. She has been slightly controversial by saying that she doesn't really necessarily think there's a special relationship. This is particularly in relation to the trade deal, which the U.S. has not been really excited about, and the U.K. really wants a trade deal with the U.S. So there's a little bit of baggage there. At the end of the day, the U.S. and the U.K. are close partners, and I think that that relationship will continue. I mean, there was some speculation early on when you know, discussing the restrictions on how the logistics of the royal funeral are going to be that, oh, well, maybe Biden's not going to go. Well, that wasn't going to happen. The American president has to go to the funeral of the queen, just has to. And the British prime minister has to have, especially Liz Truss, has to have the American president at that funeral because she wants the photo op. She wants the prestige of him there and, and what that signals. And, you know, I think that if you look at the areas of cooperation that we work mostly in, national security and defense, the environment and climate, and starting on you know, technology, obviously financial markets, all of those 
there is a logic to continue them regardless of whoever is the prime minister or even whoever is the president. And you, know, you look at the working level at all of the, you know, the military and the intelligence agencies, they keep going. They, they just sort of have a, a steady hand and, and they kind of ignore the high politics going on above them. And you know, maybe there's a, someone who feels slighted here and there or you know, there's a snafu, but I, I think that things will continue pretty much the same. That being said, Northern Ireland, we always come back to Northern Ireland. Joe Biden is an Irish American. He feels very strongly about the Good Friday Accord. I think he takes the American commitment as a guarantor of that quite seriously. And the, the US has been continually warning the governments of Boris Johnson and, and now Liz Truss that if you put that at risk, if you put peace in Northern Ireland in jeopardy, there will be consequences to that. And Truss might not want to listen, but I think at the end of the day, she'll have to. And and that might be a, a thorn in the side, but everyone's going to want to work around that. I think it could be said that, you know, the UK has been in relative decline on the geopolitical stage for the last century, let's call it. Would you agree that that's the case? But also, do you think that there are lessons to be learned here for the United States as we also, in some ways, have you know retreated from the the global stage uh, in the past, I would argue, in, since 2016 or, you know, in the last decade, maybe you could say. What parallels exist there? What are the possible lessons learned? So forth. Yeah, I, I think the UK occupies a slightly bizarre space because it has this global brand. It has the Commonwealth. It has certain aspects that are very global. I mean, it, I, I think its foreign service is probably second to none in the world. It, it, its intelligence presence is still quite quite good. So in certain respects, it's still quite a major power, but obviously it's, it can't compete with China, can't compete with the US, and so is less consequential as a result and has to be working with allies if it's going to make its voice heard. So I think in hard terms, yes, the UK has declined certainly, and and it will have to find creative ways, and and I think it has to the extent that culturally, and you look at uh, you know, the soft power of the UK in terms of, of music and film and and universities, research. Those are all areas where the UK has invested quite a bit, and they're world class at, and that has helped them stay relevant on a lot of issues. So you look at science and climate and public health; those are issues the UK is going to remain a significant player for the foreseeable future because. Those are areas that you can play in without necessarily being the biggest country uh, or, or biggest economy or have the biggest military. The UK does have the ability, I think, to be a utility player in geopolitics in very specific ways. So, you know, it's done quite well in the Ukraine conflict and, and kind of stood up and helped lead the vanguard in terms of helping Ukraine and standing up to Putin. I think on climate change, it has it, it's done a lot and will continue to do a lot. Uh, you know, the UK, because of some islands in the Pacific, was able to create at one point, it may have been surpassed at this point, but the biggest marine ocean preserve in the world. There's things like that that the UK can do, I think, quite be quite creative and then work with the US and work with Europe to leverage its assets in different ways. As to the US, I think there are lessons, right? And I think that creativity, that nimbleness is important. You know, I think one thing Boris Johnson was criticized for with this, this UK strategy that came out, I guess it was last year now, post-Brexit, was that oh, he's trying to be a Pacific power and a European power and send carriers, fleets to Asia. And there's something to be said to that. Like, yes, on one hand, the UK wants to have global pretensions of, of power. It should protect power. But also, 
it has two carrier fleets. Can it really have one of them permanently in the Pacific? And the answer is probably not. It probably should focus on Russia or, or the Middle East uh, and, and kind of keep that focus. And, and so I think that the U.S. can take lessons from, you know, the U.K. overextended after World War II, and it had to come home. And, and that, that was a famous you know, series of moves it made where it, it you know, the, the east of Suez retreat was a, a, a big moment for the British Empire. And I don't know if the U.S. is going to have something similar, but I, I do think the withdrawal from Afghanistan, there are some parallels, not just with Britain's withdrawal from Afghanistan, you know, 150 years ago, but from that idea of, yep, okay, this is this is an area that we no longer can afford in good conscience to, to stay uh, for our priorities. And, and so I think the U.S. can take some of that Try and be a little more flexible, be more nimble, more opportunistic in in that. That being said, the U.S. remains the biggest economy in the world. It remains the military superpower, so it doesn't. It has the reserve currency. It, we don't have to make those choices, but we are going to start having to make them. And so the U.K. does offer an instructive way to, I think, gracefully decline. I will say the advantage the U.K. had is that they had the U.S. taking its place, and. It's unclear who you know. If the U.S. If, if the U.S. of our place is being taken by China, that's very different. You know, we don't have that same trust and that same friendship and those shared values, and that makes a big difference. And so, that's going to continue to be the sixty-four million dollar question, or whatever whatever that phrase is, in terms of can the U.S. You know, who can the U.S. work with to retain its the values and 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 place in the world without necessarily being belligerent about it and being acting like Russia. With that, we'll move on to our final segment where we each talk about something we're following in the news, either culturally or politically. Zoe, why don't you kick us off? I've been following a story that came out recently about the transferring of the company Patagonia to a nonprofit and a trust that will now own and control 100% 100% of the company, both its voting stock and its non-voting stock, to ensure that the company remains committed to fighting climate change. And all of the company's profits will be donated to climate change-related causes and organizations. And this was all executed by the founder of Patagonia uh, and his family, who have all been very committed to climate-related issues for, for a long time. And I think it's interesting because there's been a lot of innovation in the space of corporate governance and how to make corporations more impactful and sustainable and how to, you know, sort of embed mission and purpose into, into the DNA of a company. They're not the first company to use this type of structure as part of a, a succession plan, but, you know, they may very well be the largest or the most prominent. And so I will be interested to watch whether or not these actions end up having ripple effects in various corporate communities, but also for smaller business owners that are thinking about how to maintain mission in their companies, you know, as it turns over to the next generation of employees and owners. So really interesting development, very cool and excited to see what happens next. Scott, what are you following this week? I am following some developments in space policy. The National Space Council met last week under Kamala Harris. Obviously, I think they'd hoped to have done so, having had a successful rocket launch as part of the Artemis project to go to the moon. But nonetheless, there's been some interesting momentum on getting countries to sign up for the Artemis Accords and 
some new space defense policies coming out of the US and, and the UK. And, and so it's a lot of interesting momentum, a lot of things happening in space. And so it's an exciting area to be following. This week, the week we're recording, I'm following some border clashes in Asia. In 2020, Armenia and Azerbaijan had a border war around Nagorno-Karabakh, an internationally recognized part of Azerbaijan, which is made up of a significant number of Armenians. The war killed over 7,000 people, and that conflict ended with a trilateral deal between Armenia, Azerbaijan, and Russia. Unfortunately, that border conflict has flared up again, and who knows if Russia is going to be able to step up and cool tensions, given their focus on the war in Ukraine. Separately, Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan have had some border conflict where Kyrgyz and Tajik border guards have exchanged fire. Kyrgyz border guards accuse the Tajiks of taking positions at a part of the border that has not been demarcated. The Tajik side said in a statement that Kyrgyz border guards opened unprovoked gun and mortar fire on their outpost. I don't really have anything coherent to say about these issues other than to question whether we're going to see more of these in a multipolar world when the great powers are all focused on each other. With that, thanks for joining us. Next in Foreign Policy is produced in cooperation with Foreign Policy for America's Next Gen Initiative and as a proud member of the DSR Network. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. You can follow me online at Grant Haver, follow Zoe at Z Weinberg, and follow Scott at Scott A. Babe. If you're a foreign policy expert under 40 and want to be featured on the show, be sure to follow the link in the show notes. This week's episode is brought to you by A Farm Upstate, which is excited to welcome the Royal Corgis following the end of their distinguished service. Join us in two weeks to hear more about what's next in foreign policy.